Welcome to the CEC report for the 14th of July 2017. I'm Elisa Barwick and joining me today is Craig Isherwood, CEC leader. Welcome, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Elisa. And on today's show, why the Trump-Putin meeting is the most important event this year and flashing red warning lights on Australian speculative bubbles. So firstly, why the Trump-Putin meeting is the most important event this year. Um, some of our viewers, if they're new to the show, might think this is the worst event this year. Two of the most demonised people in recent times uh, across the international media. However, it's actually extremely important for the world if we want to avoid thermonuclear World War III happening at any time soon. Um, you know, the US and Russia are two of the main nuclear powers in the world and their relations in recent years have been at one of the lowest points they've ever been. Uh, now, the Hamburg G20 Leaders Summit took place in Germany on the 7th to 8th of July. And in and of itself, it wasn't much of a notable event, actually. However, a whole series of bilateral meetings took place, too many for us to mention on the show, uh, on the sidelines of that event, which was which many of which were extremely important. Um, of course, the G20 itself was formed in 1999 to create the basis, a framework internationally to solve economic and financial problems. And after 2008, uh, it took on an even greater role uh, creating the Financial Stability Board in order to attempt to solve the global financial crisis. However, it actually made matters worse, as we've talked about many times in the show, coming up with such great ideas as bail-in, seizing people's deposits and bonds to try to save the banks. And of course, they've made no progress whatsoever in resolving the too-big-to-fail uh, problem. So not a lot of that really substantially was even discussed at the G20 meeting, but we'll come back to that a little later. Most of the important events, Elisa, are always done behind the scenes at these things. I mean, there's a formal agenda uh, which is put up for the mass media, is manipulated by the Western media for their, you know, for the Western governments for the political propaganda use. There was a, going to be a big focus on climate change yeah. again at this G20, but that sort of got fizzled out yeah. because it got overwhelmed by the importance of the Trump-Putin uh, meeting. And the build-up for this meeting was phenomenal in terms of the attacks on Donald Trump, the attacks on Putin. So people who were saturated in this country and others in the Western world that believe that, you know, demonised, have been... You know, believe the uh, the propaganda against Putin and against Trump. Mm. Well, they would be a bit surprised to realise that this was a very well-run meeting. It was very closely held, as you might want to go through in a minute. Uh, but the results were actually very, very important. Mm, exactly, and those attacks, particularly on Trump uh, and the demonisation of Russia in the United States since Trump and even before he was elected. Um, you know, that Russia interfered with the election, that whole uh, story. Mm. It's all been to prevent such a meeting occurring, and this is why it's been the most anticipated event probably this year. Um, you know, Trump's been in a big uh, tug of war, really, with the Washington consensus, the neoconservative elements even of his own party and the Democratic Party. Um, and finally, he overcame it because even just prior to the G20, of course, as everyone would know, there was a big flare-up of the situation with North Korea, um, given that they tested these uh, ballistic missiles 
for the first time, intercontinental ballistic missiles, and the reaction of the Western countries was uh, very um, inappropriate from the standpoint of reacting with aggression rather than a diplomatic approach, and that's what Russia and China were very concerned about and warning against. So Trump could have easily capitulated yet again and not had this meeting uh, with Putin, but he didn't do that, which was very important, um, despite massive you know, personal pressure on him. Uh, as you said, they got to sit down, and there was only the four of them in the meeting, so Trump, Putin, the two foreign ministers, and two translators, so there wasn't any interference. They could actually get to know each other, which was one of the most important things to establish a rapport. Um, and they did. Putin actually said of Trump that he's a very down-to-earth and direct person who analyses things pretty fast. Uh, and he said that he thinks that relations between the two countries can be revived. And Trump said that he was honoured to meet Putin. And the meeting went four times longer that was than was planned. They had constant interruptions saying, we've got to go, we've got to move on to the next thing. And they kept extending it out, which was a good sign. Now, Helga Zeppelarouche from the Schiller Institute, which with which we are aligned internationally, called it a serious breakthrough and said, if understanding has been established on the personal level between the heads of the two strongest nuclear powers, that itself means the meeting was very successful. Uh, Rex Tillerson, the US Secretary of State, said the perspective of both Putin and Trump is that this is a very important relationship. The two largest nuclear powers in the world, we simply have to find a way to move forward. And I want to also show a quick uh, clip. This is Stephen Cohen, who's a Russian expert from New York University. Uh, and what he reflected was very important. We'll just roll that clip. Looking to gain from today's meeting with a Russian leader. Well, for that, we turn to an actual expert on the subject, a Russian speaker. Stephen Cohen is Professor Emeritus of Russian Studies at NYU, formerly taught at Princeton. He's also a contributing editor at The Nation magazine. He joins us tonight. Uh, Professor, the first thing you notice is just how much the press is rooting for this meeting between our president and the Russian president to fail. Why? Why would they want it to fail? Well, it's a kind of pornography. <clears throat> just as there's no uh, love in pornography, there's no American national interest in this bashing of Trump and Putin. As a historian, uh, let me tell you the headline I would write instead, what we witnessed today in Hamburg. Uh, Potentially historic new detente anti-Cold War partnership begun by Trump and Putin, but meanwhile attempts to sabotage it escalate. Now, I ha you said I was an expert. I actually do have one expertise. I've seen a lot of summits, as we call meetings between American and Russian presidents. Was president uh, was present at some, even participated. Uh, in the first George Bush's summit uh, preparation, when he met with Gorbachev in Malta, he invited me to Camp David to debate before his team. In that context, I think what we saw today uh, was potentially the most fateful meeting between an American and Russian president since the wartime. The reason is, is that the relationship with Russia is so dangerous, and yet we have a president who might have been crippled or cowed by these Russiagate attacks on him, and yet he was not. He was, I think, politically courageous. It went well. They did important things. And this will be astonishing to be said, I know, but I think maybe today we witnessed President Trump emerging as an American statesman. I think it was a very good day for everybody. 
And he went on to comment actually that one of the most important things, one of the breakthroughs was that the US and Russia established a alliance against terrorism, which is crucial. Um, there was also Richard Sakwa, who's a British professor from the University of Kent, and he said, not since Cold War summits has a meeting been so assiduously impeded as this one. <laughs> and just by taking place, it was a challenge to the knavish alliance of liberal internationalists and neoconservative globalists. So it's got a fair few people in a twist, Craig, and the response to it since Trump came back to the United States has been an escalation of the attacks. President uh, Dwight Eisenhower, when he was going out of office, Elisa, a warned to beware of the military-industrial complex. Now, just imagine if President Trump and President Putin were to align with the BRICS nations for a coalition of peace through development. Therefore, the 30 or 40 wars that have happened since World War II, you know, there'll be an end of that entire paradigm. There yep. will be into a peace through development process. That is devastating for the military-industrial complex that wants to sell these millions and millions of dollars worth of weapons, but it's also deadly to the global financial oligarchy, the financial elites of Wall Street, of, of the City of London and the British Crown, because what that means is that the idea of creating wars in the first place for the destruction of nation-states and this whole post you know, World War II uh, paradigm of the responsibility to protect, which has seen the Iraq War, it's seen the destruction of Libya, it's seen Afghanistan and so forth. Those sorts of things become uh, ancient history. We can move into a new paradigm of peace through development. And that's why they're coming out attacking this guy, Donald Trump. I mean, they've brought back in Australia, you might have seen footage from 2013, where Trump we had no, wasn't even on the political stage at that point was talking about, you know, to Russians that were in America and they were belittling him saying, you know, this is the sort of influence he had back then or the sort of friends that he had. Um, God help any of us if we've got Russian friends, yeah. it seems, because in five years' time we might be on television. Mm. You know, the fact that we dared to talk to Russians. I mean, mm. one of the natural things that you do in politics is talk to other people. Mm. Now, they, it doesn't matter what nationality they are, but the fact is you've got the mass media twisting these entire, uh, you know, these... these public discussions or, or meetings or whatever for the purposes of a political goal. Now that's what you're seeing with these Donald Trump Jr. attacks and so forth. There's no context to it yeah, except which is substance. contrived by the media for the purposes of a political goal yeah. of, of, a, of attacking Trump and the direction he could take the United States with Putin. Yeah, and um, I mean this, this idea of ending wars so we can actually develop and go forward, that of course takes the idea of an oligarchy that can rule over the world from financial standpoint, um, you know, geopolitical standpoint, out of the equation. And I'll just say, uh, finally, that Xi and Putin, the Chinese president and the Russian president, met just before the G20, which was also very crucial, and they discussed um, a pathway to solve the North Korea situation, but also to form, as they put it, a new type of interstate relations based on cooperation and mutual benefit which would allow the resolution of any of these sorts of conflicts through political means, mm. and that's what this G20 represented. Now, we'll just take a quick break, but we'll keep talking about this after the break. Welcome back to the CEC Report, where we're discussing the Trump-Putin meeting that just took place on the sidelines of the Hamburg G20 summit. And that G20 summit, uh, Craig, 
Chancellor Merkel of Germany had wanted that to be completely focused on breakthroughs around climate change and also waging a war on the increasing amount of protectionism that's being thrown up, including by Trump and the United States, of course, to try to uh, put America first. Um, now, it's interesting because uh, the climate change agenda was completely eclipsed because Trump personally insisted, of course, because they've withdrawn from the Paris Climate Accords, uh, that there be a proviso put into the final communique. So there's actually a whole paragraph separately in the communique, the final document of the event, uh, saying the US does not agree with this, etc., etc. So that was a significant uh, dint in the armour of what Merkel wanted. And the other was on free trade. And they did say in the communique that they will continue to fight protectionism. Uh, but there were, again, provisos where, for example, it said that, um, and this was a US driven effort to put a reference in there to reciprocal and mutually advantageous trade. So, you know, beginning to at least shift that directionality. I found it rather interesting, Lisa, that the discussions between Trump and Putin took place whilst the main panel on climate change was supposed to be going on. Yeah. <laughs> so, of course, Putin was not part of that discussion either, and he mm. doesn't have very supportive views of all the different ideas of what have been promoting the fraud of climate change, mm. or I should say global warming rather than climate change. Yeah. We do have global climate change, but it isn't global warming. It's a natural phenomenon of the Earth's mm -hmm. um, various cycles. Um, now, the other thing in the communique was that it did include the reference to inclusive growth, which is the statement that the Chinese promote and Xi Jinping in particular from China uh, had brought up at the previous G20 meeting in Hangzhou, China. Uh, and it also discussed the need, as he also promotes, to shape globalisation to benefit all people. And that's what, you know, the Chinese are pro-free trade in their own words, but with Chinese characteristics, they mm. say we have to change um, the intention of it to benefit everybody. And this prompted an interesting freakout this week in The Australian from Rowan Kallick, who said, oh, you know, Xi Jinping thinks he's the chairman of the world, basically, um, because his ideas are making an impact. And that's a very good thing, because what China is trying to get nations to do is rise above their differences. I mean, you're always going to have differences. There were differences between China and Russia, between um, Trump and Putin in all these various meetings. But they were able to put that aside because there's a greater challenge here that we have to face, the global financial and economic challenge, challenge of terrorism, of you know, various war conflagrations. Um, and that idea is something that Australia has to think about because we've been holding off on working with China on their initiatives such as the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, and I want to raise the fact that there was a meeting, it's known as the Summit Davos Forum, which took place in Dalian in China on the 27th to the 29th of June. And a number of Australians there actually spoke up in favour of Australia joining with this grand development alliance to build infrastructure across Eurasia and joining in with Europe and with Africa, etc. Um, and that included the former Victorian Premier John Brumby, the former Australian Foreign Minister Bob Carr, and an economist, James Lawrenceson. And of course, the debate about whether Australia should join or not has been continually in the Australian press. And in May, Lawrenceson, this economist, pointed out that he said, in the end, Australian participation in the BRI might be driven by pressure from state governments. While the Developing Northern Australia initiative is a federal one, many key decisions relating to it, such as project development approvals, are the prerogative of the governments of Western Australia, 
Northern Territory and Queensland. And there's been moves, you know, by various states, especially the NT, to move in that direction. In fact, the NT has just announced with its schools a program called the Confucius Classroom Initiative um, to develop better relations with China by teaching them about Chinese culture. Mm. So what mm. do you think, Craig, of this idea of state governments leading the way to force the federal government to well, move? Lisa, we've, we've been writing about the, the British role in trying to force Australia to go with the Obama pivot. Now, you have this British doctrine, which is classic British doctrine, of the zero-sum game. There always must be a winner and there always must be a loser. Well, I think the state governments are recognising that we're the losers here, right? In fact, we can go with Xi Jinping's other concept, which is a win-win solution, where everyone wins. As you said before, they put aside differences but go for the commonality. And in our case, I know, as I talk to many people on, on our support base, Australia, uh, China's about to complete 20,000 kilometres of high-speed train uh, What line. do we have? None. <laughs> I mean, come on, we're the losers here. Mm. So I think the state governments are starting to realise that, you know, if we follow this zero-sum game idea for all sorts of ideologies, and it's been pretty strong in Australia, uh, the states are going to lose out. And that's why you're getting this uh, actually less ideological idea in, uh, amongst um the state governments, they are realising we have to develop our state and how do we do that? Well, yeah. we can't ignore what China's doing. Yep, and after the break, we're going to talk about why we need to do that urgently because of the flashing red alarm bells going off on the housing bubble and other bubbles in Australia here. Welcome back to the CEC report. Now we're discussing flashing red warning lights on Australian speculative bubbles. Uh, now, of course, the main bubble we're looking at here is the housing bubble, but I want to show three comparisons where we have measures here in Australia right now that are worse than the US was before the 2008 GFC. Now, on the housing bubble, uh, firstly, or the property bubble more widely, just a reminder that uh, the government really created this circumstance at the time of the last GFC where to prop up the banks, they deliberately stoked the housing bubble. Yeah, tripled the home, first homeowners grant. Yeah, with measures yeah. like that. So we've created this situation and now we have to diffuse it urgently. Now, remember, the, there's a number of agencies at the highest institutional level that have warned of the coming bursting of this bubble including the IMF, the OECD, the heads of APRA, the Reserve Bank, the head of ASIC, and David Murray, former Future Fund and CBA chief, and of course many other experts, experts and analysts along the way. Um, so in terms of this comparison with the United States, firstly on the property bubble, new analysis from Crestcat Capital shows that the property bubbles in Australia and Canada and now each more than 200% of GDP. And that dwarfs the US housing bubble in 2007, which reached only 160% of GDP. Um, now also Dr. John Williams, who's president of the San Francisco Federal Reserve, has warned that countries like Australia and Canada, which avoided a crash back then in 2008, quote, perhaps didn't learn the lesson of how painful, unquote, a crash can be. And he described Australia's housing market as flashing red. Uh, but he also indicated that just raising interest rates will cause a lot of other problems and be very costly to the economy. So it's, there's no simple solution to it. And we'll just show this graph because uh, this actually shows 
you know that all bubbles burst. These are the various credit bubbles involving household and corporate debt of different types, so including, including you know, mortgage debt and so forth. And you can see Japan, Thailand, Spain, the US, all these bubbles on the left side of the graph, orange, yellow, brown and uh, green have all burst. And then on the right, if you look to the very right, the orange, uh, dark green and brown curves are Canada, China and Australia, which have yet to burst. But I will note here that China's includes a lot of corporate debt, which has gone into what we were just talking about, the building of real infrastructure. But you cannot say that of Australia and Canada. I think, Alicia, just uh, we had an anecdotal report from some people that came back from Ireland just this last week, and they said that uh, they were speaking to an owner of a property over there who said prior to the Irish housing bubble collapse, his property was worth 1.5 million, and now it's only worth 200,000. In fact, that's what he borrowed against that 1.5 million. He was offered by the banks, I think, 7,000 euro to walk away from his property. So that's gone from 1.5 million down to 200,000 mm. in the collapse of their property bubble in Ireland, mm. which of course caused the banks to fall over and the government had to step in to prop up the whole, the entire economy, including the banks. So this is what I think uh, John Williams is referring to from the, you know, the San Francisco Federal Reserve is that perhaps people didn't learn of how painful a crash mm. can be. Well, I don't think there's any hint of that here in no, Australia at the present time. they're about to find out. And the second measure that relates to the US is that our interest-only loans, where the people are not paying back any of the principal but only paying interest because they can't afford to pay more, uh, those interest-only loans here in Australia are 40% of all mortgages. In the US, pre-GFC, they were only 25%. Now, there's a big regulatory pressure to reduce interest-only loans on at the moment to 30%. Um, but Scott Morrison, the Treasurer, reiterated this week that there is a lot of risk you know, involved in the sector and that a hard landing in our housing market would have quite a devastating effect on our economy. And, and he reiterated APRA's demand to reduce those interest-only loans. What he's saying there in code, Elisa, is that the Australian banking system has 80% of its assets tied up in housing mortgages. If you reduce the demand for housing and the housing prices fall, that means the ability for, for these investor loans to service their loans on the housing market collapses. Mm -hmm. So you could end up with an implosion. Yeah, and now some of the banks are putting up their interest rates unless people shift their interest-only loans to interest and principal. So that's having an effect too. And you can see on the graph, there's been a slight, this is another graph here, there's been a slight drop in investor loans uh, from half of bank lending to 46%. So that's loans that are purely for investment, which shows a big, of the big part of the speculative component mm. of the bubble. Now, thirdly, is household debt, where, as previously reported on this show, we Australia has a record high debt to income ratio of 190%, and that figure is almost 50% higher than the US had pre-2008. So we need to implement Glass-Steagall and we need to do it soon. Craig? Yeah, well, Glass-Steagall separates out the legitimate and necessary banking system, which has got deposits in it and just does all the boring stuff from the merchant investment banking operations, which would lend out you know, money to investors and so forth. And that's got to be completely separated apart as was done in the 1930s, 1933, by Franklin Roosevelt with Glass-Steagall. 
Otherwise, there's no protection for people's deposits, there's no protection for the economy, and the economy being in free fall. Mm. Imagine properties being devalued from 1.5 million to, two, to mm. 200,000. We need to reorganise the entire system. Um, now, call in for a copy of our Australian Alert Service. We'll send you a complimentary one. You can find out more about all of that. And also note that we'll be at the Adelaide Show in September at uh, the Jubilee Pavilion, and we'll give you further details soon. Thanks for tuning in.